Does the 2022 election show how Democratic campaigns win? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Democrats did far better than normal for the party of the presidency in the 2022 midterm election, especially in swing states and districts. What do the early results say about the impact of turnout, electoral coalitions, and campaign messaging? And what can be learned about how Democrats might overcome their structural disadvantages? On this special election edition, I talk with David Shore of Blue Rose Research about his initial analyses of election results, his studies of campaign effects, and his tracking of Democratic strategy. Shore argues that campaign effects, especially from moderate, popular candidates and policy positioning, are underestimated, while changes in the composition of the electorate are overestimated. He works at the intersection of political science and practice, and I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So in uh, 2020, it was pretty immediately clear uh, that uh, Democrats had gained uh, votes with white college-educated voters and lost votes uh, with Hispanics. It seems a little more stable uh, this year. What's your uh, take and what can we learn from that? Um, Yeah, you know, I I think it's still early to say, you know, one of the annoying things about looking at... uh, uh, like the first, the most complete data that we have is county level data and doing ecological regression off of county level data is always terrible. Um, just because, uh, you know, the, mer- uh, the most diverse counties are just these large urban counties. Um, you know, the, we've managed to piece together precinct data in, you know, a decent chunk of the country, but still, you know, probably something like 10% of the population. And so far, uh, it really seems like uh, things have been pretty stable. Um, you know, there's been pretty uniform swing um, by right by race, as far as I can tell. Um, really, the only evidence uh, now, to be clear, that's uniform swing from 2020. And uh, in 2020, there was this massive realignment on uh, racial lines, and it does seem like that realignment is here to stay. Um, the only place where there really was much reversion at all was, uh, you know, a couple of uh, border counties in South Texas. Um, which swung dramatically more than anywhere else in the country. Um, you know, there were parts of uh, South Texas that swung 30 percentage points uh, from 2016 to 2020. And it looks like those areas had something like a 10 percent bounce back in the gubernatorial race. Though, to be honest, um, you would expect that. Generally speaking, uh, you know, in the industry, uh, the thing with off-year elections or gubernatorial elections is they usually are kind of best predicted by a weighted average of the previous two pre- uh, presidential elections. And so all of that is all. Uh, and so, you know, from that perspective, the fact that we haven't seen bounce back uh, in most of the in most of the country does kind of imply that in, in a sense, like non-white voters continue to trend against us. Just it, on the education polarization side, it seems like, if anything, it remained at least stable, if not um, further increased, and yet Democratic votes were sort of more well distributed. Yeah, I mean, I just want to, on the previous point, uh, I do want to say that it does seem like there were large uh, gaps in turnout, at least defined in terms of uh, relative turnout from 2020. It's a little too early to say relative to 2018, which is probably a better comparison. Um, but yeah, just to answer your question, I think that the most interesting um, part of this election, like the thing that would have been most surprising to me a year ago, uh, is that if you look at Democratic incumbents who were in swing races, you know, swing House races, swing Senate races, swing gubernatorial races, they really outperformed by quite a bit more um, than the rest of the country. Just to put some numbers on that, if you look at 
uh, House Democratic House incumbents in uh, swing districts, just defined by you know by Cook, you know uh, toss up or lean, uh, they saw about a half a point drop off um, uh, underperformance from uh, Biden's twenty twenty uh, Democratic two way. Incumbents outside of those swing districts saw something like a three and a half percent percentage point decline. And so that's what I find very interesting about this is that, you know, we might end up with a popular vote of something like 48.5%, but we're going to really outperform, Uh, you know, political scientists talk a lot about the vote seat curve. And from what I can tell, Democrats are going to get something like eight or nine more seats than you would have expected just from uniform swing, Uh, because it really seems like there was a red wave everywhere in the country, except for the places uh, where they're uh, that mattered. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I follow elections a lot. I like do, you know, I like fit vote seat curves a lot up here in other countries. And I've, I've never seen anything like this. Uh, and so I, I think that that's definitely the most interesting story of this cycle. So how did that happen, given that uh, the education polarization didn't, uh, didn't seem to decline? Um, so Democratic votes are still mostly coming from the same kinds of uh, places. Um, but um, as you say, we could get a fairly normal vote shift from the presidential uh, year to the midterm year. You know, Democrats won the National House popular vote by three three points or so last time. They could lose it by <laughs> that amount this time. Um, and yet they were so much better distributed. Why is that? Yeah, I think what's interesting is, you know, this is really about the races. Like if you look, there are clear media market discontinuities. Uh, I think one of the interesting thing is if you look in Pennsylvania, um, there are parts of Pennsylvania that are covered by New York media markets instead of uh, Pennsylvania ones. And Fetterman really did much worse, uh, as did Shapiro. And, you know, it's, it's hard to distangle exactly how much of that is advertising versus how much of that is local media environment. But I think that there really is this story that Democrats in swing districts and in swing races really acted very differently um, than Democrats in the rest of the country. They had a different or a media environment. They had very large spending advantages. I think that that's one of the big underrated uh, stories about this. If you look at the four closest Senate races, uh, Democrats outspent Republicans massively over the course of the election cycle uh, in, a w- uh, in a way that wasn't true nationwide um, or true in non-swing races. The volume of ads, I think, was uh, you know, while uh, was pretty unprecedented for a midterm. And, you know, that was absolutely true in governor's races and also secretaries of state races. Um, I think this gets to, you know, some of the positive sides of education polarization, um, which is, you know, like we, I, something I talk about a lot is that, you know, democracy doesn't resonate very much with voters. And we see this very clearly in ad tests. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why Less than 1% of ads that were aired in Senate races this cycle were about January 6th. They're about democracy. But donors, donors really care quite a bit about democracy. There was an unprecedented effort um, by the donor community to pump money into governor's races and, um, and secretary of state races. And I think it, you know, the results show for themselves. Um, so that's what I find very interesting about this story is, you know, ticket splitting by some measures went up. From 2018 to 2022, though, you know, we need to wait until all the data is in to really know that for sure. Um, and it really seems like we have um, uh, kind of a return a little bit to an older politics of campaign effects and ticket splitting. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there's, I think that the, just to go back to the media market discontinuities, I think it, it 
does highlight maybe not just ads, because um, uh, I'm, I'm sure that there were digital ads in those places or not, but also really different comm strategies. Like people talk about Betterman, for example. And, you know, one of the things that Betterman was, and both Betterman and Shapiro really were very methodical about is that they made an enormous amount of local TV appearances. They spent a lot of time, uh, you know, trying to, uh, trying to do external facing comms. And so I, I think that we kind of have a two party story where there's like the party of Jared Golden and then there's the party of, you know, uh, of blue state Democrats who are optimizing on different objectives. And uh, it's super interesting to see. I, I wouldn't have expected it a year ago. So in a normal uh, midterm, uh, voters balance the party of the presidency, um, usually through some combination of a relative turnout advantage and swing voters moving against uh, the party in power. So this year, was there less of a backlash to Democratic policy direction, or was there just a near equivalent backlash against the Republican policy direction uh, under Dobbs? Um, yeah, you know, again, nationally, this looks like a very normal midterm. You know, it's... Again, they're all rough numbers and they may, they may change as we get more data. But I think one of the, uh, from what I can tell, it looks like the turnout environment for uh, Republicans turned out at higher rates than Democrats did. And that was where, you know, the, the, it looks like there was something like a four percentage point shift, you know, from, 20, uh, from 2020 to, to uh, 2022, though. Obviously, it all depends on how you define your baselines. And I think probably about half of that was turnout and about half of that was people changing their minds. And so, again, that's a very normal thing. You know, that's pretty, you know, like uh, that in, in 2018, it was something like a 75-25 split for persuasion. Um, you know, in 2010, it was really 25-75 turnout in the other direction. But like this is all pretty expected. Um, uh, and so I, I, it's, I think that this is really a story of, you know, Democratic incumbents being able to preserve their incumbency advantage uh, against uh, a bad environment. Like, I think if you if you look at uh, the turnout electorate uh, this cycle, I think it's going to really resemble the Virginia turnout electorate in a lot of ways, you know, with large drops in non-white turnout, with uh, Republican mobilization, um, and Democrats were still able to win anyway, which, uh, again, is incredible. But Democratic ads were... Um hyper-focused on abortion, uh, as was Democratic messaging. Um, and so it does seem like there was a bit of a, uh, there was an effort to take advantage of um, a backlash uh, to the uh, abortion decision. Um, that also seems like it might be a one-off, a sort of hard to repeat uh, thing uh, for, for future elections. So what what should we take uh, from, from that focus? Well, well, you know, obviously there's a thing, the effects of it's hard. There's not. It's hard to know the long run effects of policy positioning. You know, on one hand, you have one set of literature focused on ads that tell you that effects decay and that there's mean reversion in politics, and you have, you know, I think an, another set of literature. Um, if you look at you know spatial voting models and all of that, that suggests that uh, this kind of thing could be um, very durable. I think less quantitatively. Something I think about a lot is that you know Republicans. You know, uh, Democrat, Republican, Democrats were able to run against Republicans for a very long time on the idea that they want to cut Social Security and Medicare. And, you know, I think that those attacks were effective really right up until the, Dem the Republican Party, you know, loudly repudiated, um, uh, uh, you know, Medicare and Social Care, uh, Social Security, Security cuts in 2016. I think 
the big question in my mind, I mean, uh, I, I say this a lot, but if you look at the electorate and the median voter since 2012, in the past 10 years, you know, the electorate has gotten much more educated and much more secular um, and much less white. And yet, despite that, Barack Obama got 52% of the two-party vote and Joe Biden got 52.3% of the two-party vote. And, you know, the reason for that is that the parties changed their positioning due to, um, you know, internal demands um, from, uh, from, you know, stakeholders and within the party. And, you know, I think at this point, the saliency of Republican demands on abortion have really increased a lot. And some of that is from the Dobbs decision, but I think some of that is just because you know, uh, they actually have to defend these bans. Like, I, I, I don't think that, I think that if Republicans don't change their positioning and continue to make um, support for these bans um, necessary, I think that will continue uh, realignment on these lines. Um, you know, the Republican position on abortion right now is extremely unpopular. I think it's as unpopular or more unpopular than defunding the police. Um, and if they continue to make that a big, part of their agenda um, uh, and don't distance them, themselves from it in the way that Democrats have, I think that will continue to, you know, cause damage. I, I think one data point on this that I find super interesting is, you know, the single most effective ad category that we tested uh, this cycle was, uh, you know, in, on the Democratic side, where all of the ads, and there were a bunch of them by Democratic incumbents, where they went and they said, I don't support defunding the police. Um, and that was actually very, believe it or not, even though the defund, uh, you know, debacle was two years ago, those ads still did a lot. Um, and they, I think they were something like, I think 1.7 or one time, one time, 1.8 times more effective than, than the average ad. Um, and so I, I do think that uh, if it, a lot of this just kind of depends on what the parties do, which is, you know, one of the most boring answers. So there, there was a story that um, there was sort of a, a long-term shift um, in relative emphasis uh, to cultural issues um, relative to economic issues. And we've seen an international pattern where that's associated with educational polarization that might be bad for, especially geographically, uh, for the Democrats in, in the U.S. Um, some would say this was an example of an election where the Dems were able to win on cultural issues. So maybe that that story um, is overplayed. Um, but you now see you now seem to be saying that you think there might be, if Republicans continue moving rightward on maybe this issue or transgender issues or other things, uh, schools, um, that, that there might be an opening to, to win on cultural issues going forward. Yeah, I mean, I think that you have to disentangle, you know, there's the, uh, the, there's the structural bias of the uh, American electoral system, which overweights the views of people who live in rural areas um, and underweights the views of people who live in urban areas. Um, and that really does meaningfully put a damper on a lot of things that otherwise would be theoretically popular, like, I don't know, various kinds of gun control. Um, you know, I, I think, to be clear, a lot of gun control is less popular than people think. But it's true that there are some some uh, versions of it that are popular with the median voter, but unfortunately not popular in the median voter in the median Senate state. Um, but the Republican position on abortion um, isn't like that. Uh, abortion, you know, abortion bans have electorally failed at the ballot in places like Kansas and Montana and Kentucky. Um, this is, you know, actually a big losing issue for them. Uh, and, you know, I think an underrated story of, you know, 2016 and 2020 was that the Republican Party really moderated on a whole host of issues. Um, you know, they moderated, they 
passed these large multi-trillion dollar spending bills. They mostly, mostly, I mean, the one time that they did try to do a, a healthcare bill, they did pay an electoral price for it. Um, but, you know, they ruled out the Ryan Care plan. They ruled even the ACHA plan that they tried to pass, I think was much more moderate than I personally would have guessed going into that administration. So, Matt, I think you, you, um, you're a lot more calibrated on these things than most people. So maybe you weren't surprised. Um, and, you know, I think in the aftermath of 2020, um, I think Republicans, uh, you know, and I think this might be common that in off year, like the time to go to the ideological extremes is when you are the out party, um, since you already have the wind at your back. And it seems like Republicans were a little overconfident. You know, they loudly embraced a very high salience on popular issue. Um, and I think you could really see, I mean, I know this sounds like a just so story, but you can really see the effects, you know, the poll, the polling immediately changed and, you know, polls suck these days. So, you know, there's some other indicators that also changed. If you look at uh, the special elections index, which is basically in you mean uh, pre and post, pre and post yeah, they yeah, just pre, pre and post jobs. There was an enormous shift on every electoral indicator, whether it was polling, whether it was special election performance, whether it was primary vote share. Um, there were really these very large changes. Um, and I think that the most straightforward explanation for that is that voters punished the Republican Party for doing something extreme. Now, voters have really short memories. Um, if, uh, if the Republican Party stops talking about this stuff, uh, you know, and makes this a less salient part of their platform, uh, then they can recover and do well, you know, I, and I think, to be clear, that's not an academic thing, both Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, both, you know, have, uh, you know, uh, have reasonable, um, uh, I mean, not not reasonable, but by the standards of their party, fairly moderate stances on abortion, 15 weeks and whatever. Um, Florida does not have a total abortion ban. So it is possible that, you know, uh, they can they can move to, you know, that they can continue doing that and they'll be able to sustain activist pressure. I wish I had a good intra GOP model of politics. I don't know. Like I know on the Democratic side, uh, it'll be interesting to see if they have the same pressure to move to the extremes that Democrats did in the run up to 2020, I don't know, but I think that's kind of the big question. But the flip side of that, you know, is that the national environment will probably improve for Democrats between now and 2024, as it has for almost every party between the midterm and the general. So Republicans uh, heavily focus their advertising campaign on inflation uh, and the budget uh, and crime. Democrats, mostly responded on crime um, more than more than keeping up with Republican uh, ads on the economy and inflation. Um, evaluate the, the Republican ad strategy and the Democratic response to it. Yeah, you know, I, I think that the uh, I think that Democrats in swing races uh, really showed an enormous amount of discipline when it came to the ads that they put on. Uh, I do think that you know, uh, Dobbs created a giant opportunity for them, but they did actually have to go and exploit it. And, you know, I think what, uh, what on the Democratic side, uh, you know, when we look at our testing, Democrats put most of their ad spend toward issues that, uh, issues that were much more effective on average, you know, the economy, abortion, healthcare, social security. I think that this was probably 
uh, I'd have to look at the comparative data, but I think that there was a boomlet in social security related um, advertisements this cycle. Um, you know, it used to be a mainstay um, for Democrats running, but I think uh, it's kind of come back. I like to joke that, you know, sometimes you can play the hits. Um, but uh, so I, I on, on the other hand, you know, I think that, uh, you know, Republicans did run uh, a lot of ads on crime and the economy and inflation, and those were good issues for them. But I think that probably the biggest low-hanging fruit that uh, they they didn't pick is that you know there was a there were these these incumbents had they tried to distance themselves from the party you know on issues like abortion, uh, which. Uh, successful Republican incumbents like Susan Collins did in 2020, I think they would have done better. You know, we've done some preliminary ad, ad tagging and, you know, we've seen, we saw really very little of that from Republican incumbents um, this cycle versus last cycle. So as you said, there was more split ticket voting, at least uh, between governor and uh, Senate races um, this year. And curiously, uh, in those last New York Times polls, uh, Democratic Senate candidates were, were uh, outperforming uh, by a uh, important margin, uh, people who wanted to see Democratic control of the Senate. In other words, there were some voters who would rather have had Republican Senate control, but were still voting for Democratic Senate candidates. So how did they distinguish themselves from the National Party? Yeah, I, I think this is the most important. Um, this is the most important part, I think, of understanding this election is that, you know, there were more Republicans in this electorate, more people identified as Republican than identified as Democrats. Um, but Democrats won anyway because they convinced those Republicans to vote for them. And, you know, I think this is like a common, like, you know, when I talk about how Democrats have this big structural advantage, you know, the literal implication of that is that the only way that Democrats can win uh, close elections is to win a large share of people who want Republicans to control the Senate. Um, and, you know, we, we this was the struggle in 2020 when we had to win a bunch of fights in our plus two seats. I think that this year, you know, luckily there was incumbency, um, you know, at their back. But I think the really big story um, for how they did it, um, uh, I mean, there's a couple of different pieces. Um, they had pretty low quality candidates. Um, you know, if Herschel, if Donald Trump hadn't endorsed Herschel Walker or Oz, um, I think it's, we would have had a very different, <laughs> it's quite, I mean, I think Republicans probably would have taken the Senate. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, again, Democrats had massive spending advantages in basically all of these races. Um, I think, again, kind of kind of like 2020, you know, to be honest. Um, and uh, I think on top of that, uh, I, I just think that Democrats, uh, Democratic Senate candidates ran a lot of uh, good ads and were able to distinguish themselves. I mean, this just goes hand in hand with the, uh, with the ticket splitting not declining is that they, people, these incumbents were able to successfully distance themselves from the party. I think there is a, probably a little bit of a dynamic, dynamic. Like I think obviously this has to be Dobbs related. It's not, Dobbs wasn't really just a uniform swing. I think, you know, more speculative, speculatively, you know, when you think about this from the perspective of like being a, a campaign operative, normally the pattern for how midterms go is that you know you have these incumbents in swing races or in red or in red states, and they start off with these really big leads, but the partisanship of the electorate is you know it's not is, is actually not very good, and uh, you know the reason is they're running against these opponents who are barely well known, and people just tend to vote for folks when they don't know who the other person is, and then what happens in the summer is that these Democratic incumbents are just pummeled with negative ads. Bad, bad news cycles and scandals, uh, and then things converge to partisanship, and then a lot of them lose. 
Um, I think that Dobbs, just by timing, managed to disrupt a lot of that. Like, if you just think about when it happened, it was like the end of June. And uh, it really led to this news cycle where uh, the news cycle cycle in Arizona was, what does Blake Masters think about abortion? And why did it change (laughs) three weeks ago, as opposed to how liberal Mark Kelly supposedly would be? And so, you know, I I think it it really did provide an opportunity um, for uh, for Democratic incumbents to define themselves. And yeah, who knows how how replicable that is, um, unfortunately. So Democrats substantially underperformed uh, in New York and Florida, which happened to be your current home state and your uh, original home state. So yes. anything, specific, <laughs> anything specific about um, the dynamics in those states or just more generally, why did it seem to be the case that, um, you know, that we had state specific effects this year? Uh, Colorado and Michigan, um, you know, seem to be going more in the Democratic direction and New York and Florida less so. Yeah, I mean, I... Again, I, this is more speculative, right? How many states are there? But I, I, I do think that, again, this is an example of uh, how Dobbs really, uh, played, I think, played, created some space for ticket splitting in that it really did create some material stakes to government, where if you look at uh, places like New York or Oregon, it is not actually very plausible to say, oh, if you vote for the Republican governor, that abortion will be banned. Not really true. Um, But uh, in Michigan uh, or Pennsylvania, it is absolutely true Uh, because there you have these very conservative state parties. You know, I think it's there's a really interesting story about how the state parties in the Midwest are really every bit as conservative as the state parties in the South, despite being in much more having much more moderate electorates. Um, And uh, and they didn't shy away, really, in a lot of ways from the fact that they wanted these like very tough, very unpopular abortion restrictions. And I think Florida is interesting, too, because um, Florida is one of the rare Republican states where they had a trifecta and a very quiet Supreme Court and decided to not push ahead with extremely um, expansive changes to abortion law. And, you know, when you think about what it's what the Florida Democratic Party is supposed to do, realistically, if your opponents, if you have, you know, scandal free incumbents who are not doing anything substantively unpopular, in a bad year, it's kind of it's kind of hard to know what you can do about things. I do think another aspect of this, and you know, I really do want to say there there are strong funding and campaign effects at play. Ron DeSantis really raised so much money. I I, I don't have the exact number, but I, I think that he raised more than literally any non presidential candidate in the history of America. Um, and I think his number was something like forty percent higher than the next highest uh, than the next highest uh, state campaign. Just because, you know, the modal rich person is someone who doesn't like Donald Trump, but does like Ron DeSantis. That's not a statistical claim, but, you know, um, I think it, it hints, at, hints at what's going on. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say um, so in the, at the same time, you know, just kind of going back to, uh, you know, New York and to New York and Oregon. I think another side of when you think about what's going on with these media market Pennsylvanias and Pennsylvania, sorry, someone on my team is obsessed with them. Um, uh, you can tell a story that the New York media environment was very, very focused on crime. Uh, and so all of these voters in Pennsylvania, even though they lived in Pennsylvania, were hearing all these, all these stories of Kathy Hochul and her bail reform. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that changed the salience uh, of how they voted. Just to talk about New York specifically, um, you know, I, I think that obviously I don't 
I don't know what happens, you know, and I don't spend a lot of time thinking about the politics of my, uh, of my home state. But something that does come through, there's kind of two data points that I think are interesting. The first is if you look at turnout. Um, you know, turnout, you know, just the uh, number of votes in 2022 divided by number of votes in 2020 is in a pretty stable band in basically every single county and this then just drops completely off the floor in New York, uh, which I think hints pretty strongly at poor and non-white turnout, which we do also see basically in the rest of the country, though I think it's probably stronger there. Um, the other thing that we've done is we've looked at state assembly districts because um, the results have been broken out there. And we looked at uh, Schumer versus Hochul vote share um, by assembly district. And something that we did see is that there is pretty strong relationships with the percent uh, where basically Hochul declined, you know, underperformed the most relative to Schumer in uh, assembly districts that had more working class white people. And also, and this is an even stronger effect, heavily underperformed in the assembly districts that had the most Asians. Um, and so I think that's pretty consistent with a crime story and a salience of crime story. I think, again, this highlights the importance of policy um, that, uh, you know, they they did bail reform and then crime went up. And, you know, there was a situation where that could mean something. And again, getting to money, um, the Republican Party was much more, uh, was much better funded this cycle um, than they had been in previous ones. And I think that you probably had similar dynamics going on in Oregon, though I haven't looked too deeply into it. So polls were off uh, less than normal uh, overall. Um, you have been interested in why they were off uh, in, in the Trump years. And one of the explanations uh, was that there were these people who didn't trust institutions and therefore um, didn't respond uh, to polls and um, might not be easily correctable by just uh, waiting on party. Um, so, so have we solved the problem? Uh, was it Trump specific and will it return uh, soon? Yeah, you know, what I would say is that if you look, um, you know, there's always, I think, two different, when you look at 2020, there were two different polling errors that were going on. You know, the first thing is that there has been a pretty consistent regional pattern of polling error in 2016, in 2018, and in 2020, um, uh, where Democrats would consistently get the overestimated in places like Ohio, and then would be consistently underestimated in places like Arizona. And, you know, I think the reason why that's happened is basically that, um, you know, latent socioeconomic status, which you can measure across a whole host of, you know, whether it's social trust or whatever, um, you know, uh, has always been very correlated with survey response, but only recently became extremely correlated with vote share. Um, And uh, so as a result, you know, this creates this like regional pattern of polling error that has been quite consistent. Um, And from what I can tell that probably continued into 2022. It does seem like the public polls um, uh, underestimated uh, Democratic vote share uh, in Arizona and overestimated Democratic vote share in Ohio. Um, we'll have to wait until all the all the data is collected, but I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it, basically, if it basically continues in some form, even if it's a little bit attenuated. Um, but then the other, the other error, you know, because this is what people care about the most is the national number. In 2016 and 2018, the polls were basically right nationally. Um, but they had these very big regional patterns of error. And in 2016, that was enough to change the nature of the Electoral College. In 2020, though, the um, polls were had a giant pro-democratic bias. And that had nothing to do with social trust or shy Trump voters or you know whatever. That was really specifically um, because, and to be clear, it was, there, there's a lot of reasons to believe this, but it was because Democrats stayed home during COVID and liberals specifically stayed home during COVID. 
and everyone else didn't. And so liberals just started answering a lot more surveys. And we can validate this in a bunch of different ways. We've looked at uh, anonymized cell phone data, joint surveys, and we can see that liberals spent much more time at home. Uh, if you look at polling error and correlate it with local COVID rates, the relationship is quite strong, which, by the way, led to a misspecified Chris Warshaw paper in the summer of 2020 that concluded that COVID was strongly hurting Republicans, when actually uh, it was just a polling non-response mechanism, which is kind of funny. Nothing against Chris, I do like him. Um, and then, uh, but like if you uh, flash forward to... 2022, that last piece wasn't really an issue. It does seem like the polls, on average, were you know pretty good. Uh, might have had a might have even had a pro republic uh, a pro democratic sorry a pro republican bias. But I do think the regional error pattern probably is still mostly there. So some uh, Republican candidates uh, f- seem to to face an extremism uh, penalty, including uh, relative to other Republican candidates running in their same uh, places. Um, on the other hand, um, at least some folks on, on the left uh, think that there wasn't that big of a, a moderation effect for Democratic candidates um, uh, this year. So where, where, where do you think the, the size and, and uh, character of the moderation effect uh, looks after this election? Um, you know, we'll be releasing stuff on this soon. But, you know, I, I think it's very hard to, to look, at, look at this data and, and not see this as evidence for returns to moderation. Like one of the big salient, like when, we, when, when you hear that Democrats in swing districts outperform Democrats who aren't in swing districts, the big difference between Democrats in swing districts and Democrats who aren't in swing districts is that swing district, swing district Dems are more moderate. Um, I think if you go line by line, um, you know, there's a graph circulating on Twitter where you compare Senate versus gubernatorial um, vote share uh, by state. And you see that the most liberal candidates underperformed their gubernatorial while the more moderate ones didn't. Um, you know, I think uh, if you actually go through and check um, uh, candidates who, you know, said that they didn't support defund, if you just do regressions, a lot of flags associated with moderation do well. Um, and, you know, we did some, We, you know, I've been working with another political scientist on some very cool conjoint measures of uh, ideology where you put Democrats and Republicans against each other and ask which ones are more liberal and which ones are more conservative. And, you know, we're seeing that, like, uh, what we're seeing so far is that there's a roughly, you know, 3% effect, you know, going from most conservative to most, you know, least liberal to most liberal, Um, which, you know, isn't that large in the scheme of things. But, you know, one thing I'll say is, you know, the, um, it, it isn't that large in the scheme of things, but in the context of very close elections is obviously a big deal. Um, this is uh, these are people are being asked to support a Republican or Democratic candidate with different uh, ideologies. No, no, no. It's, it's like you, you show one Democrat, another Democrat. You're like, which one do you think is more liberal? You fit a, you know, IRT model and then you and then you correlate that with election results. Um, and, uh, you know, there we see pretty strong stuff. Obviously, it's hard to do with stuff like nominate because nominate doesn't work anymore um, because the parliamentary, because, you know, we have a parliamentary system now, whether we like it or not. Um, but I don't, I do think, uh, I don't think it's uniform though. Um, you know, I, I think this is like a statistical effect that exists, but um, you know, I think some left-wing, you know, some moderate candidates underperform by a lot and some left-wing candidates do, do well. And there's still a lot of work to disentangle how important is being moderate versus liberal versus how important is it to be independent from your party? uh, Or how important is it to appear trustworthy? And, you know, we're doing a lot of research on that. I think it's a very important question. Um, But I think it would be a mistake to not look at the world around us and conclude that moderate candidates do better on average. 
So is this more about uh, recruiting and nominating the right candidates or a sort of running the right general election campaigns? Or another way of, of saying this, I guess, more pointedly is once you have, say, Mandela Barnes as the candidate in Wisconsin, is there a general election campaign that uh, you can imagine sort of working as well uh, as as for, for someone else um, and maybe, you know, not facing any kind of, of penalty for previous perceived liberalism? I, these things are additive, um, you know, obviously, uh, it, it's, it's better to, uh, it's better, like, I, I do think something that's hard, you know, is that uh, once you, uh, politicians can be very popular, and then something can happen that can break them, and then it can take a very long time to recover, you know, like Hillary Clinton in 2012 seemed like the most popular politician in America. And then the Benghazi scandal and the email scandals happened, and then she was not. Um, you know, I, I think if you look at the Wisconsin race, um, you know, Mandela Barnes had large leads, really, for a large part of the election cycle. But then when, um, you know, once Republicans started attacking him on, uh, you know, previous statements that he, he had made that made it seem like he supported defunding the police, you know, his support dropped. And so I think it's like a really interesting story where it makes me wonder if the ideology, if ideology of candidates becomes more important as you get through the election cycle. Um, uh, and, you know, I think just another example of this on the Republican side is that, you know, in the very beginning, Mastriano was polling better than Oz, um, you know, immediately after the primaries, uh, just because, uh, you know, a lot of people came into the primary disliking Oz for reasons that have nothing to do with politics. Um, and, you know, I didn't really know that much about him other than that, you know, I mean, they knew about the January 6th stuff that was always, you know, um, that was covered very early. But it turned out he had a lot of other extreme positions on things like abortion um, that voters really cared about. And once, you know, we were in a position to tell people that, uh, it, uh, it, I don't know, it ended up paying an electoral penalty. So I know you're skeptical of uh, young voter mobilization uh, as certainly as a mechanism for, for this election, um, but I know it does depend on the, the baseline and, you know, young voter mobilization is going to be much higher than, say, 2014 and 2010, but not as high as 2018. Um, so uh, I, I, don't, I don't know why people are so confident of that, for what it's worth. I, 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 don't, I don't know. Um, like, I, it's true. I, it is what, I mean, you know, if you just look at county level 2022 uh, over county level 2014, uh, you know, it's hard to, once you go that far back, population growth is entangled. But if you just did some naive ecological regressions, it would say that like the youth share will be closer to 14 than 18. But I don't know. Um, to be clear, I, I have, I don't want to rely too much on ecological regressions for age. Um, uh, but I, but anyway, you were saying. <laughs> but obviously, it's a traditional pattern that young voters turn out a lot less in midterms than presidential elections. Um, there is, uh, there's might be some reason to believe that, you know, after you get three elections in a row of, um, you know, slightly higher uh, turnout in those midterm elections, that 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 is sort of a closer to a new normal. Um, what, what do you think? Do you think uh, that this is going to be uh, I mean, obviously, Democrats are much more reliant on young voters than they were before just because their margins are so high. So it seems like that that has to be uh, a part of your predictions for, for going forward. Well, you know, I, I always um, I always like to joke, you know, uh, people have been saying, you know, young voters are more Democratic than old voters since 2004. And actually not that much has changed. Um, but some things have changed. Uh, you know, I think 
turnout uh, was very low in 2014. And, you know, the Trump era, 2016, 2018, 2020, really featured absolutely enormous increases in turnout. You know, 2018 was, um, in some, in, I think in some states, either matched and some counties exceeded um, general election turnout, which is absolutely crazy. Um, and 2020 was even higher turnout you know, than 2016. I, I didn't really know what to expect, you know, when it came to how many people would vote this cycle. I think an underrated, you know, I, I, I think something that I found very surprising was that 2021 gubernatorial turnout was higher than 2017 gubernatorial turnout. And so I think a lot of people were expecting a very high turnout election. You know, what we ended up seeing instead was that, you know, turnout declined somewhat, um, you know, from 2018. There's a lot of state by, it's hard to study too closely because there's in midterms, um, there's really always a lot of state by state variance based on perceived competitiveness of races. Um, but, you know, I've, everything, I think that, uh, I think about this less about young, young versus old, and really just kind of more about how high turnout is overall. Because if turnout increases substantially from like 40% of the general to 80% of the general or whatever the 2018 numbers were. Mechanically, the way that has to happen is that youth turnout has to really go up a lot. And so this is, I think, really mostly, like I, I think that this is mostly a story of uniform swing, um, you know, going up and down. And I think the good news is that, you know, turnout only fell by five to 10% and not by more. Um, you know, it seems like interest in politics has gone down somewhat. Um, since, um, since, uh, since 2020, uh, but, but it still is at a fairly high level. If Donald Trump is on the ballot and there's a primary next year, I assume interest in politics will continue to grow. But I do think something that's like worth thinking about is that, you know, uh, there's kind of a, there's kind of a trade-off here that I think a lot of people don't realize, which is the way that turnout gets high, you know, it's not by student debt giveaways or, you know, whatever, it's just by making politics really divisive. Um, and like, and the way you do it is usually by increasing the salience of cultural issues that really play on identity. Um, that's the thing that gets people excited and out there. And I think that that is, generally speaking, not a great position uh, for the Democratic Party to be in. I like to talk about like this, the monkey paw of the past 10 years a little bit, where you know, immediately after the, uh, in 2012, like immediately after 2012, you know, age polarization had already happened. Uh, race, pol you know, uh, ra uh, the electorate had polarized on racial lines and education polarization hadn't really happened yet. And so as a result, the correlation between your chance of being a Democrat and your chance of voting was higher in magnitude, though negative, uh, than it had really ever been at any point. I think probably in American history, though it's hard to, hard to know, but at least any point in the previous 10 years. Um, and so it was really true at that point that if you could dramatically increase turnout and hold support constant, then you would completely transform American politics. You know, there were estimates at the time that if everyone had voted, you know, Barack Obama would have done 5% better than if everyone had, hadn't voted. And I think this led, you know, I was funny, I, I worked in democratic politics, you know, I, I saw this in elite circles, where it really led to this idea that we need to dramatically increase voter turnout so that we can create social democracy. And it led to people funding racial justice groups, climate groups, um, that really did a lot, I think, to raise the salience of, uh, of cultural issues. Uh, and they succeeded, you know, at, at dramatically increasing turnout. Um, uh, the problem is that it turns out that 
GOT, you know, sporadic voters, people who, you know, don't vote in every election, um, uh, are lower, are generally are less educated. Um, and as a result, um, tend to be kind of economically center left, but, you know, culturally fairly conservative. And as a result of this, non-voters went from being an incredibly democratic group to uh, being a, in 2020, an either neutral or even slightly Republican leaning group. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 it makes me think that a lot of the, the tra- there are actually way more trade-offs around voter mobilization and turnout than people realize. So should 2022 change our uh, long-term forecasts of, of Democratic potential? Uh, it seems like there was always three three options you, you posed. Uh, one was to institutional reform. Uh, second was getting rid of education, polarization. Uh, but the third was just successfully competing in center-right areas. Um, and does 2022 uh, show that option three is is quite feasible? Well, you know, it is worth um, it is worth pointing out. Democrats are still quite severe underdogs, um, you know, in the Senate in, 20, in 2024. Even if they have 51 seats, I think, you know, there are three very Republican states with Democratic incumbents. And so it's not impossible. But, you know, I, I do I do want to be clear about that. But, you know, I, I, I think that one of the best criticisms uh, that people, have, you know, had of uh, of the stuff that I've said is that, you know, it just might not work. It might not be possible. Like maybe if you try to appeal, maybe if you do your best to not say unpopular things and say the right things on Title 42 and put out ads that are good, like maybe you'll just lose anyway. So maybe we should just, you know, focus on loudly advocating for our values and hoping that, you know, the conditions change. And I see this election as um, really a vindication that campaigns matter um, and that issue taking matters and that uh, and that messaging choices matter. And, you know, to be clear, um, a lot of this, uh, you know, the reality of our situation is that due to our structural, um, uh, the structural biases of our electoral system, Democrats are at a, a big disadvantage. And that means that, you know, we have to do everything right and they have to do everything wrong and then we can narrowly win. Um, and if the Republican Party decides to stop making, you know, gross, um, gross malpractice mistakes, um, uh, then, uh, you know, we'll be in a much worse position. Um, but then, of course, you know, if the Republican Party decides to get better, we'll all be better off anyway. Um, so I, I, anyway, I guess to make that briefer, I, I really, um, this does, the fact that ticket splitting did not continue to decline, um, you know, the fact that uh Candidates like Jared Golden were able to considerably outperform fundamentals by making better decisions. Like, you know, that that brings me a, a lot of hope. And, you know, just in terms of longer term effects, it's very good that all of our uh, all of our Midwestern governors were not wiped out. Um, it's useful to have uh, Midwestern governors with uh, good with uh, popular Midwestern governors with electoral records to stand behind. So you stand a little bit at the uh, center of the practitioner world and the political science world and that you're bringing some insights from political science to practitioners and vice versa. Uh, but you also, I think, uh, you know, you, you're OK with annoying each side now and then. Uh, so uh, tell us a little bit about what uh, political scientists should learn from the practitioner world and, and vice versa. I'll say, um, you know, I, I think academic political science has just been hugely, hugely influential, you know, to how, how I do my job. You know, uh, I, 
just to, you know, throw names out there, like, you know, David Brockman's work on representation, um, you know, and salience really changed a lot about how I thought about these things. And there's really a whole host of work out there that I think has been really influential. You know, I think, um, I think the really big thing is, uh, it's funny, you obviously wrote quite a bit about this, um, is that there's really been like a credibility revolution in political science where, you know, there have been these big methods improvements, data has become much more available. And, you know, obviously surveys have become quite a bit cheaper and it's possible to do survey experiments now. Um, you know, I would say, and, and so I think a lot of the traditional conventional wisdom that kind of came out of the political science of like the nineties or the two thousands, you know, uh, that was, you know, then went through a pop science filter and kind of turned into this idea that issues don't matter. Voters don't care about policy. Um, you know, there are no swing voters, you know, et cetera. Um, you know, it's very useful, I think, to actually look at the data and learn that that stuff isn't true. I think that there's actually, you know, I mean, it's really incredible to me the extent to which really basic political science facts, like the party that holds the power usually loses power in midterms, or the idea of thermostatic public opinion. I will tell you, I, I mean, I, I talk to, uh, you know, people at the highest levels of, uh, of the Democrat, of, of American government have no idea about these facts. Um, and I think that's a shame because I think political scientists have really learned a lot about how democracy works. And, uh, you know, folks who, uh, folks who are in the business of trying to win elections should should uh, take note. And to be clear, I'm, I'm not the only one. I think a lot of a lot of pollsters take the political science quite seriously. I think in the other direction, you know, I think uh, I, I would say that there's I think that a lot of political scientists, I, I think the speed at which academia moves um, really puts uh, political science at a little bit of a disadvantage because American democracy, you know, the American political system and the dynamics of how people vote have really changed dramatically um, in the in the past eight years, in the past four years, in the past 12 years. And I think it's very common for political scientists to just not really be able to keep up with those facts. You know, you'll I've seen political scientists and economists make claims that incumbency advantages. 8% based on that like regression discontinuity design paper, which to be clear, nothing wrong with it, but it's like aggregating over like a 40 year period. I wish incumbency advantage was 8%. That would make my job way easier. Um, and uh, so, you know, I, I think um, just uh, really throwing, the, I, I think that they're really throwing yourself into the complexity of what, what out, what's out there and moving quickly. You know, I think that a lot of political scientists were very slow to catch on to racial depolarization. You know, one of my, and I, I say this, you know, I don't know the political science community that well, but one of my personal frustrations is I think that they were very slow to, ca to, to catch on to the fact that education polarization exists. I think there were some quasi-ideological biases of uh, American political scientists that just made them, think, made them think that the VRA kept happening. I was uh, like, you know, the fact that it took Piketty to go out and actually like publish a paper on this stuff. Um, you know, I, I just remember political scientists denying that education polarization was a thing really as recently as, you know, the fall of 2016. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there are definitely some blind spots um, just to list some grievances. Yeah, I'd say my two grievances are actually probably being slow to catching education polarization. And then kind of a lot of the pop political science that came out of um, the 20, 2016 primary on the Republican side, where a bunch of people were really convinced that there was no way that Trump could win. And I remember being very frustrated about that just because, you know, I like pulled out, you like pull out the regression 
from the party decides, you know, and you do endorsement point, endorsement points and vote share. And he plugged it in. It was like, oh, Trump has a 50% chance of winning. Um, and that kind of gets to like kind of my final, I guess, critique. Um, maybe not a political scientist. Maybe it might just be academia, which is like, you know, uh, something I really like as a practitioner is that our job is to like make numbers and predict things for a living. And I think that that really does bring a certain level of rigor, um, you know, to your thinking. Um, and, uh, you know, to be clear, I've, I'm, I'm obviously not perfect and we make mistakes all the time. But uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of value to actually like trying to make testable predictions and keeping yourself accountable and, you know, plugging things into the regressions, um, getting your hands dirty. I think that that's probably, that's a big thing with practitioners. We just have to pump out, you know, like our, our team, I think by the end of the election cycle, we were doing something like 2000 tests a week. And so it really, um, it's a very different beast, but you know, there are advantages and disadvantages to both, obviously. So one of the things that you mentioned was slow speed, um, but obviously we're talking in the wake of an election um, and there's been a critique of people making kind of immediate uh, pronouncements. So on the one hand, we have uh, limited data. On the other, at least I think it was quite clear some of the main lessons from uh, the, the last election um, were sort of immediately clear in geographic data. Um, so, but wh where should we be slow um, to, to jump to, to conclusions about what happened in the election and, um, and where should we be more confident that we can, we can pretty much know what went on quickly? You know, I, I think that uh, just to talk a little bit about the, the data availability schedule, um, you know, what we have right now is we have county level data in most of the country, though not everywhere, which is relevant for some things, um, you know, because most parts of the country complete their, complete their counts actually pretty quickly. Um, uh, but then obviously, uh, if you want to know what the overall popular vote total is going to be, we're not really going to know. Uh, until like mid-December, um, thanks to, you know, places like California. Um, uh, but I think that uh, over the next couple of days, you know, we're going to have completed counts and maybe, you know, on a county level in 90% of the country. Uh, you know, we're going to have precinct data and probably something like 20 to 30% of the country, um, you know, probably in the next week or two. Um, and then probably the final you know, the final um, bit of data, and this is what's annoying, is we get voter files really basically in like February or March. And I think it creates this kind of dysfunctional dynamic where like I think that my big picture thing about this is I think that people kind of have too high a bar. Like I think a lot of academics have too high a bar for certainty um, where, you know, one example is that you know, if you do a county level ecological regression nationwide on age and it, there's a strong negative slope, like chances are youth turnout went down, but I don't know, age on a, on a county level, age is correlated with, you know, various things like urbanity and population growth and whatever. So it could, I don't know, I'd probably give it like a 10% chance that maybe there was no relationship. I'd be pretty surprised if it went the other way. Um, but I think that uh, in the absence of um, of political scientists kind of trying to go out and say, hey, I think this is what's happening. Um, there's a pretty well-funded group of people on the other side who are trying to advance claims that are wrong. And I think that it is actually very important for us to do the best that we can to, uh, to get a rough sense of what happened out there. Because, you know, I mean, I don't want to be too hyperbolic about this, but, you know, the immediate narrative after the 2012 election was it Obama won because he dramatically increased non-white turnout and youth turnout, um, and uh, that the Republican Party was that Mitt Romney was too extreme on abortion, 
And this led the Democratic Party to obviously make um, a bunch of poor strategic decisions. And it also pushed Republican elites um, to go in a direction that left themselves open for a populist takeover that ended up, you know, kind of wiping out um, the uh, only pro-democracy people in the Republican leadership. Uh, and so that was actually like, I mean, I, I, I like, I, I used to tell a joke where it's like, you know, I never thought that poorly conducted exit polls was going to be the cause of the end of the world. But I think it is, you know, it, 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 there's a real case that it was. And, you know, to be clear, you know, what actually happened is that Barack Obama won because he convinced a bunch of culturally conservative white people in the Midwest to vote for him uh, at higher numbers than, than, than Kerry. And, you know, that that's not, I, I think it's funny that, um, you know, it's important to get these things. Uh, it, it's important. I think it's better to put out your tentative claims rather than wait until March when you really know for sure. Um, and when at that point, if everything is settled in and no one really is going to care. So what are your biggest uh, unanswered questions that you expect to, to have better answers to uh, uh, soon? And uh, what, what's next for you? Yeah, I think for the thing, there's, there's the, the things that I'm, I'm most curious about. Um, I think that it's still kind of too early um, to make definitive statements about what uh, about education polarization um, or um, uh, or you know, racial swing. It seems like there are some state specific stories. I mean, it seems like there are a lot of state specific stories for what happened that I think will, um, uh, maybe more than usual that I think will paint, you know, tell us some very interesting things about responsiveness. Um, you know, I think that, uh, I'd say it's still kind of hard to get a good handle on the turnout uh, on, on the subgroup turnout stories. Um, I'd say that, and then, you know, we really have to wait until the House results come in to really be able to answer questions about Democrat, about responsiveness for ideology. I'd say those are the, those are probably the big ones. And in terms of what's next for us, I mean, you know, I, I, uh, work for, uh, I mean, I helped found an organization called Blue Rose Research. We're about a, we're a 30 person shop, mostly data scientists and software engineers. You know, we work with this cycle. We worked with, I think, something like 150 clients. We tested thousands of messages um you know uh we're we're gonna prep for you know I, I think that we have a good we have this cycle is proof that you know uh campaigning and electioneering competently matters and you know we're gonna try our best to prepare for 2024 i don't know uh probably the first thing i'm gonna do is get some sleep <laughs> there's a lot more to learn the science of politics is available bi-weekly from the niskanen center i'm your host matt grossman if you like this episode, I think you'll like our prior discussions of positioning, campaign practice, and policy. When information about candidates persuades voters. When public opinion goes to the ballot box. The past and future of polling. Abortion politics takes center stage. How does the public move right when policy moves left? Those five recommended episodes are available on our website. Thanks to David Shore for joining me, and please listen in next time on The Science of Politics. 